one and all. Thank you. You're looking a bit tired this morning. Everybody okay out there? Is it just the cold and then you come in and it's nice and warm? I know. It is good to see you all this morning. Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles, please, to 1 Peter. You know, a number of years ago, I used to uh, be really into this series called Heroes. And the Heroes um, series, I can see a few of you nodding. You're like, yeah, it was really cool. I know, it was really cool. And the series always started with previously on Heroes. And so you always caught up at the start with where are we so far? And so previously on 1 Peter... What we have been learning so far are some incredible things in this letter. To start off with, we have learned that we have been born again to a living hope. My friends, the good news for us that those that know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior is the best is yet to come, is it not? We are not home yet. We have been born again to a living hope that is unfading, that is undefiled, that is imperishable, that is being kept in heaven for you. And by God's grace and for his glory, he is keeping you for that great reality to come as well. What that means is here in this earth, as we walk it as Christians, we are merely sojourners and exiles here. Brothers and sisters, we simply don't belong truly on this earth. This is not our home. Heaven is our home. We are sojourners here. We are aliens. We are strangers here. But we are indeed, as 1 Peter has told us, a chosen race, a treasured possession, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. How incredible it is to know that we are the Lord's treasured possession, don't you think? To know that He chose you before the foundation of the earth. To know you that He's called you to be a part of a royal priesthood. And He has called us, as we've seen in 1 Peter, to be holy as He is holy. To become like him. As his treasured possession then, he wants us to live in a manner worthy of the calling that we have received. And starting in chapter 2 verse 13, through to the end of the section that we're on today, he starts to help us see what that actually looks like. What does it look like to live as God's treasured possession? What does it look like to be holy as he is holy? And so he explains to us first up what that looks like when it comes to civic life, how we're to relate to governing authorities, how we're to honor them and support them in our lives, how it works in our professional life, how we're to relate to our employers from those over us that we have a disposition to follow. And right here in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, we see how it relates to us when it comes to married life. What does it look like in a marriage to honor the Lord, to live in a way that brings glory to Him, good to ourselves, and is a witness to those around us. That's what he's looking at here in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. So let's read these verses together. We're going to read 1 Peter 3 from 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, They may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious.'" 
But this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. By submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children. If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. So that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's ask the Lord for help. Lord, we do come to your word today as people that are in desperate need of it. Lord, I thank you for the clarity of your word. You don't leave us guessing. And though we may struggle with it at different times, because it is so different to what our culture is screaming at us, it's the word that will set us free. It's your truth that will bring hope. It's your truth that will bring grace. It's your truth that helps us to understand how we're to live as your treasured possession and your royal priesthood and as your holy people for our good and your glory and as a witness here in this earth that we're merely sojourners and strangers in. So Lord, help us to hear your voice this morning. Help us to grasp this concept and to build it into our hearts. And would it all be for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of the things I love to do when I preach wherever possible is to use quotes. I do it for a number of different reasons. I do it in part because when you use quotes, it is a good reminder to you and to me where I get the intel from. You know, when a preacher sits down, it's not just like it's Jesus and me with my Bible and then we just go for it. No, we gather friends around us. We gather commentaries. We gather people that are way smarter than us to figure out what does this say and how do I best serve the church that I'm serving by understanding it and grasping it and then preach on it. So one of the reasons why I use quotes is to remind you where I get this intel from. But it's also as an expression of humility because there are just many people out there way smarter than I am. And I want you to hear from the best, which is some of these people. And one of my favorite quotes is from a man called Bruce Milne. He, he says this, he says, Why is the study of doctrine so vital? He says, firstly, because as a matter of plain fact, Every Christian is a theologian. Once we have grasped this, our duty is to become the best theologians we can be for the glory of God. As our understanding of God and His ways are clarified and deepened through studying the book He has given us for that purpose, the Bible. Secondly, because getting doctrine right is the key to getting everything else right. If we are to know who God is, who we are, And what God wants of us, we need to study Scripture. That means it's teaching as a whole, and that means doctrine. This holds true for every single area of the Christian life. Listen. For at every point of the Christian life, right living begins with right thinking. That is the gold right there, my friends. At every point in the Christian life, right living begins begins with right thinking. At every point in the Christian life, if things are going to go well for us, if we're going to bring glory to the Lord and be a witness to the world, then at every point in the Christian life, right living begins with right thinking, and right thinking stands in the very words of God, does it not? 
It is this word that guides us. It is this word that brings clarity into the chaos and into the confusion of our world. For at every point of the Christian life, right living begins with right thinking. And when it comes into today's topic on manhood and womanhood, and God's grand design for marriage, we are so in need of His voice into our lives, are we not? You know, just this week, Emma and I went on a date night. We do this weekly. We've been married for 23 years. This is one of the practices we built into our marriage, and I'm a very, very happy husband. It's a way that we cultivate friendship. It's the way we cultivate romance. It's about all I've got. And selfishly, I love it every week just to hang out with my wife. And this week was no exception. We went to Parramatta. We go to Eat Street. And because we live in the hills, we're kind of between the two. And so we headed to Eat Street. And I don't know whether I'm just getting old or whatnot, but we sat down at a restaurant and the music was so loud. You know, I don't know at what point I became my parents, but somewhere along the line, I became my mom and dad. And so we sat down and the music is just so loud. And so Emma's speaking to me and I'm like, oh, can you... Can you mime or something? Do you know some Makaton? I mean, it just helped me here because I can barely hear what she's saying. So she's shouting at me and I'm shouting at her. It's just getting louder in there. So eventually we left. Why? Because, because we couldn't hear each other because of the din of the noise of the restaurant. You know, I think when it comes to this issue and the cultural moment we are in, The culture is loud on the issue that we're talking about today. The culture is loud in talking to us about gender. It's loud in talking to us about what we have to believe about marriage. It's loud when it comes to understanding different roles. It drowns out the voice of God. But what we actually need is the voice of God to bring us life. What we actually need is to allow the culture to die down a moment so we can hear what is the voice of God to us that will set us free. What is the voice of God to us in and through our lives? And so I'm so grateful for this text. I'm so grateful that in this cultural moment where gender and marriage and different roles are being warred against by our culture, that we can hear the word of God cutting through the chaos that we are in. And so two weeks time after retreat, I'm going to be looking at verse 7 and what it means to be a humble husband. I want the brothers in the room to hear God's word on that topic. But today, I'm going to look at what it means to be a beautiful wife. Verses 1 through 6. And so if you are making notes, I've called this message a beautiful wife. And I have three points. Number one, the pattern. Number two, the fuel. And number three, the opportunity. All seen here in these verses. And I really come to it this morning, though, with one hope. And it is the hope that we'd all hear the voice of God cutting through the chaos and confusion of our culture on this issue. That we would steady our spirits and actually just hear what is God actually have to say as my creator and my king? What does God have to say will do me good and will be for his glory and be a witness here in this earth? What does he have to say on this most important issue? So three points that particularly addressed obviously to wives, but we all need to listen in. Why? Because our culture is at war with us on this issue. 
And we all must know what it is to champion. What do we want to champion? What are we applauding on this issue? And this is what God says. Three points then to number one, the pattern. It's important to understand by way of background that when Peter is writing about this in verses 1 through 7, and when Paul is doing the same in Ephesians 5 and in Colossians 3, in both cases where they're talking about marriage, both of them are drawing from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Because all the big doctrines, all the big created order that God put us in, it all actually roots back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. In Genesis 1 then, we all discover through God's word that men and women are made equal in their value and their worth and dignity before the Lord. It's a beautiful thing. In Genesis 1 verse 26 to 28, this is what we read. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps over the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It's an amazing moment in Scripture. It's the first time you see the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, chatting and thinking about something. And what are they thinking about? They're thinking about, hey, let's make man. Let's make him male and female, and together they will reflect the Godhead. What does that make? It makes us equal in value and worth in dignity. It makes both men and women equal in their value to reflect the Godhead. That's what we see in Genesis 1. But then in Genesis chapter 2, we discover that men and women are made distinct and different in their roles. Just like the Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal in value, worth, and dignity, but differ in their roles. It's quite clear in Genesis 2. Men and women, likewise, are made equal in their value, dignity, and worth, but different in their roles as they reflect the Godhead in His Trinity. And God looked on and made these differing roles, and guess what? Just like all other creation, He said, this is good. This is the way it was meant to be. For my glory and your good. And within the context of marriage then, in Genesis chapter 2, you discover that the role is as follows. For husbands, God has called the husband to be the head and spiritual leader of his home. He's called by God to provide living, caring, and protective leadership towards this dear couple's home. And for the wife, God has called the wife to be the helper of him. And to use all her God-given gifts and abilities and strengths to help her husband as he seeks to lead their home for the glory of God. This is the way God has designed it to be. This is the way he has designed it. And then he has said, this is good. And for it to function and for it to work, somebody has to submit to the other. Quite clearly in the Bible... The role of submission towards a husband is that of the wife. And that's what Peter's saying here in verse 1. Pay attention. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Make clear there, he's not saying wives submit to all husbands. Negative. Likewise, he's not saying if you're single, you have to submit to other men. Negative. 
one wife submitting to one husband. So what does it mean? What does this submission mean? Because we want to be clear on terms. We've already seen it earlier on in the text, but this submission that is being talked about here is a willing disposition to follow and honor the leadership of another. Whenever you hear the word submission, then in the Bible, that's what it's talking about. A a willing disposition to follow and honor the leadership of another. And for all of us in the room, I want us to understand this morning, this submission is not a uniquely feminine trait. In fact, it's not a uniquely feminine trait at all. Because if we've been paying attention, we've heard this word before in this text, have we not? And so, in 1 Peter 2, verse 13, we discover that men and women alike are to submit to governing authorities. All of us in the room, as Christians, men and women, are to have a disposition to follow and honor those that God has put in governing authorities over our lives. Also, in chapter 2, verse 18, we discover that men and women are to submit to their employers. Men and women alike. This may be bad news to you, but it's happening. Men and women, if you have an employer, even if they are unjust to you on occasions, the disposition of the Christian's heart has to be to follow and honor that leadership. It doesn't mean we can't speak into it, we can't question it. It's not saying that. But the disposition of the heart is to honor it and be inclined to follow it. We're going to discover in 1 Peter 5 verse 5 that men and women are to submit to their elders to those that God has put in positions of authority spiritually in the context of the family that is church. We're to have a disposition to follow and honor the leadership of those that God has put in that position for my good and His glory and as a witness to the world. So it's important to understand that this trait of submission is not a distinctly or uniquely feminine trait. We all have to do it in different contexts. And it's also important to understand that submission is modeled by the Godhead. Did you see that? Do you understand that? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're not equally all leading away. No. Headship and submission is seen in the way they function. Wayne Grudem says it this way. I think it's brilliant. He says, The idea of headship and submission never began. It has always existed in the eternal nature of God himself. And in this most basic of all authority relationships, authority is not based on gifts or abilities. It is just there. The relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one of leadership and authority on the one hand, and voluntary, willing, joyful submission to that authority on the other hand. We can learn from this that submission to a rightful authority is a noble virtue. It is a privilege. It is something good and desirable. It is the virtue that has been demonstrated by the eternal Son of God forever. It is His glory, the glory of the Son, as He relates to His Father. Isn't that beautiful? The reason why we're all called to submit, to have this willing disposition to honor and follow the leadership of another is because that's what God is like. That is the way it functions in the Godhead. When we submit to another, we are bringing glory to the Lord because we are reflecting what He is like too. Submission is a God thing. It didn't originate. It has always been. And wives are called for the glory of God 
to have a willing disposition to follow and honor their husbands. And so wives, have you settled in your hearts that this is what God has called you to do towards your husbands? Have you settled this in your heart? Because this is a God thing, not a sovereign grace thing. This is a command of Scripture. Have you settled in your hearts as God's treasured possession, as his holy people and his royal priesthood, that this is the part I am to play in my marriage relationship? Have you settled in your hearts? And this isn't just something we should tolerate. This is something we should celebrate. This is God's word, God's best for our lives. This is the way God designed it to be all along. This is the way he said, this will go well for you. This will be for my glory. This will influence the world around you. Have you settled in your hearts? This is something to be celebrated, to own your role. Not just tolerate it. Now, I remember a number of years ago, um, my Emma was chatting to a Christian friend about this issue. It was a, a lady who was a Christian, not actually in this church, who was chatting about this issue because she had heard these differentiating roles within marriage and distinctly didn't like it. So Emma got with her and started to talk through Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, the scriptures where it talks about it, and started to explain how it works. And the woman simply said this, you know what? I see it in the Bible. I think it's crystal clear. I just don't like it. And it doesn't work for us. Well, that's a bit of a giveaway. And listen, wives, when somebody says that, your issue isn't with your husband. Your issue is with God. Because God calls you to this. It is the maker of heaven and earth that says, this is the way I want you to live. And for that lady, her issue then primarily wasn't her husband. Her issue is with God. I don't want to submit to you. I see you tell me in your word, but I'm not up for that because it doesn't work for me. Do you see? When we don't want to submit to our husbands or for men, we don't want to submit to the governing authorities or employers, whatever God has put into our lives. Our issue is with God, not the horizontal. And so wives, have you settled in your hearts that this is what God has called you to do towards your husbands? Because if you haven't settled it in your heart, right living will never proceed from wrong thinking. So does this mean then, as wives, that a wife is to be devoid of any independent thoughts and have to agree with everything their husband says? Does this mean that a wife is unable or forbidden to influence her husband? Well, make no mistake, no, it does not mean either of those two things. You know, a wife is to use her God-given gifts and abilities and strengths to help her husband, to use them. Yes, of course you want independent thoughts. Yes, of course you can't agree with everything. I thank God for the wife that God gave me 23 years ago. Emma has been the best helper I've ever had in my entire life. She's an amazing lady, and she uses all her gifts and help to strengthen me. And that doesn't always mean going, oh, yes, Dave, you are the fount of all wisdom. No, that's not the way it works. She says, you know what? I I understand that, and I will follow you if that's what you think is right, but I just want you to know, I think that is wrong. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. You know, that is the way it works. You use your gifts to influence your husband, to help him. And husbands, if if you're thinking, I don't think that's the way it works, well, you need to listen up in two weeks' time. I will talk to you about that then. 
But wives, of course you need to use your gifts and abilities to strengthen your husband's leadership. And at times that will be mean saying, dear, I, I don't think that is right. Does this mean likewise that a wife has to just blindly follow and support her husband even when sin might be at stake? When abuse might be at stake? Or where a husband might be quickening a wife to sin? No, absolutely it does not mean that. For all of us in the room, we have a higher authority than our husbands or the governing authorities over us. And his name is Jesus. We follow him first and foremost. And so when our husband is abusing his wife, or when our husband is quickening a wife to sin, that is the time where she says, No! For the glory of God. You do not follow your husband in those things because you follow Jesus first and foremostly. And where abuse is at place, I want you to understand, you need to, on occasions, call the police and call your pastors, and we will come running. That is not what this doctrine is about, as you will see again in two weeks' time. There is a time to a wife to say no without any shadow of a doubt. However, unless sin is at stake, and when things have been appropriately shared to a husband, it does mean that there be a willing disposition to follow and honor the leadership of your husbands. And ladies, let's be honest. We don't all live in abuse. We don't all live where sin is at stake. Most of our lives are all the way over here. And in that, there needs to be a willing disposition. A willing disposition to follow and honor the leadership of your husband. And so have you settled in your heart, theologically, in submission to God, that that is what you're to do. Well, no one's saying that this is easy. God himself isn't saying this is easy. That's why we discover in chapter 2, verse 11, that we are called to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your souls. Bad news, great stuff in Genesis 1 and 2, bad stuff in Genesis 3. The fall comes, our relationships are corrupted. What's the war about? I don't want to do this. Men on the whole don't want to lead. Women on the whole don't want to follow. Why? Because sin came into the world and there is a war at work. It's the war that our culture doesn't even see, but screams of. No one says this is going to be easy. But like everything in our lives, when God calls us to do something, he provides the fuel and the pathway to actually do it. And that's what Peter talks about then in verses 3 and 4, which is my second point, the fuel. See, for all of you as wives, there is indeed a fuel that comes through a pathway, something to truly gaze at that will help and fuel the submission that God is calling you to towards your husbands. And he speaks about it in verses 3 and 4. This is what he says. He says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. See, the way Peter has gone about this is he's using compare and contrast. That's the language he's talking about. Okay, so what he's not saying for you as ladies He's not saying that looking beautiful is of no value. (laughs) 
That's not what he's saying. If he's saying that, then reading in context, you shouldn't be wearing clothes either. Clearly, he's not saying that. The whole point isn't that it's wrong to look beautiful for your husbands, that it's wrong to be outwardly beautiful. He's saying, listen, that's a cool thing. But what he is saying here is there is a greater still. There's something far more important. There's something even more beautiful. And it's not the external adornment. It is the internal adornment of the heart. But that is worth greater pursuit. See, in Peter's time and culture, outward beauty was a massive deal. Women in common culture at this time were under a massive amount of pressure to look beautiful. And so they elaborately braided their hair. They seek to clothe themselves with expensive jewelry and clothing. And everyone was doing it. If you had money, thousands of thousands of dollars was going into making sure you look beautiful. And as I thought about it this week, I thought, is Sydney any, any different? This is a value of the heart, is it not? Otherwise, magazines don't sell. Adverts don't sell. Being beautiful is an important thing. You only have to go into Maya or David Jones to realize there is a market for this stuff. Thousands of dollars are spent on looking beautiful. You know, it doesn't take long to walk around Castle Towers and you think, has that lady been stung by a wasp in her lips or has she had some work done? It's a big issue for people. They want to spend time looking beautiful, or at least to what they believe is beautiful. And Peter isn't saying it's wrong to do that. But what he is saying is, wives, listen up. There is a more important beauty for you. A different fuel. Something that will change your lives. Something that I want you to clothe yourselves in. And is the internal beauty, he says, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet Spirit. You know, I have never heard once in a Christian setting or a gospel communion setting, anybody, when we have these evidences of grace nights that we all feel awkward about but enjoy, those moments where you're like, hey, can we just encourage you and what God's doing in your life? Who has ever said, you know, the thing I really admire about you is you're just gentle and quiet? Never. That's never said because it sounds weak. It sounds almost offensive. And yet, What the Apostle Peter is saying here is that this gentle and quiet spirit is something to be praised. It's something to be valued. It's something we should applaud. So what is it? Well, wives, let me let you out of your ministry, misery. It is not a personality type. That's why it gets a bad rep. It is not a personality type. That's not what they're talking about here. It's not somebody who they just happen to be gentle and quite quiet. Thank you. No, you can have a gentle and quiet spirit and not have. You can have a gentle and quiet personality, but not have a gentle and quiet spirit. And you can be very loud and yet have a wonderfully gentle and quiet spirit. So what is it? Well, it's this. A gentle and quiet spirit is an unwavering peace that comes from an unwavering confidence in God. That's what he's saying he wants us to clothe ourselves with and go after as wives. It is an unwavering peace that comes from, I know God. I know his faithfulness and kindness. I have a relationship with him. I trust him all the days of my life. It is an unwavering peace that is unfazed and undramatized by things because it is such a confidence and maturity in the Lord. That is something to be praised. That is something that the Bible calls us to go after with all our might. Carolyn Mahaney, in her book, True Beauty, says a gentle and quiet spirit 
is not a personality type or trait. No, it is the quality of a woman who meets adversity, slander, sickness, rejection, and loss with a calm confidence in God. Who amongst us as wives does not want to be that woman? This is a woman that has a calm confidence in God, that has an unwavering peace in her heart because she has an unwavering confidence in God that he is good, that he can be trusted for me and my family, that I love him, I know him, that surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. This is the imperishable beauty that Peter wants to go after in verse 4 and call wives to. And this is the imperishable beauty that is designed and described so well in the excellent wife in Proverbs 31. Why is the Proverbs 31 woman such an excellent wife? Well, as it says in the proverb, she's a wife who laughs at the day to come. She has such a confidence in God in her heart, such a mature godliness that she's not knocked by everything in life. She just has a calm confidence in the Lord, in her maturity, in her grace. It's the reason why her children rise up and call her blessed, and a reason why her husband also praises her. Because they look on at the mom and the wife and go, I love you. I love that is the way you are. I love your confidence and trust of God. Mom, I want to be like you when I grow up. And the husbands say the same, when I grow up, dear, I want to be like you. Because they see such a godly lady in there. They see someone who is worthy of being praised. And because she has such an unwavering confidence in the Lord, she's also then gladly submitting to her husband. Why? Because she submits to him as to the Lord. Submitting to him is an expression of her trust in God. I trust you. And because I trust you, I will gladly submit to this God. Because I trust you. See, I submit to you, it doesn't take weakness to submit to a husband. It takes profound strength. Because it is a choice. A strong, mature lady actually submits to a husband. Weak ones barely get there. It takes strength. To say, I'm going to trust God enough to entrust my life to your leadership and your care. And this is the way it has been working for hundreds of years. As exemplified in verse 5 and 6 by the holy women of old. I love the way Peter is doing this. He's saying, listen, let me show you somebody that had an unwavering confidence of God and the way that played out in submission in their life. Verse 5 and 6. But this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Peter takes us back here to the holy women of old. Hundreds of thousands of women that trusted in the Lord. And in particular, he wants to give the example of Sarah, Abraham's wife, that we learn about in the book of Genesis. And I was thinking about this this week. I'm so pleased that he uses Sarah because Sarah, she's no wallflower, you know. She's certainly not the lady out the back just finishing the washing up and the cookies before finally her husband comes and she takes her slippers to him. No, that's not the way this lady operates. This lady is a strong woman of God. She trusts in the Lord, and because of her trust in the Lord, she's very happy, as she does in Genesis on several occasions, to go toe-to-toe with her husband and say, Abraham, I love you. That is wrong. 
What you have done there is wrong. She's not a wallflower lady. She is a faithful, godly helper. But what she is also is a wife who has such a confidence in the Lord that she has a wonderful ability to gladly submit to her husband. A strong disposition, willing to follow him and honor him because she trusts in the Lord. See, she has mastered the art of what it means to have a gentle and quiet spirit. And because of that, she has such a trust in the God that she's able to gladly submit to her husband. See, I don't want you to misunderstand. And the point of that text in verse 5 and 6 is not that all you ladies should start calling your husbands Lord. <laughs> Fellas, don't try that over lunch. That is not going to go down very well. That is not the point of this text. Likewise, when she says that she was obedient to her husband, be careful with that. It's not talking about a child to a parent. It's still talking about the same submission as it opens the text with, a disposition to follow. So, fellas, don't try that either. And if you do, two weeks' time is going to be very bad for you. But the point of this text, what it is saying, is ladies, today, as wives, remember Sarah. Remember the confidence that she had in God. Remember the way she pursued that gentle and quiet spirit. A gentle and quiet spirit that then came out in fruit as submission to her husbands. Go after that. Go after that. Go after that internal adornment of the heart. So wives, I want to ask you this. Honestly, how are you going in pursuing the inner beauty of your heart? How are you going in there? What does that look like for you? Maybe if I was to press a little bit deeper and got a little bit braver, which momentarily I am in public. If I was to follow you around, in fact, if we were to follow you around over the next six months, no, the last six months. If I was to follow you around and we look back over the last six months of your life, what would we find? Have you spent more time looking after your external adornment or internal adornment. Because that's what's Peter drawing attention to. He's saying looking beautiful on the outside. It's a good thing. Yeah, go for your life. But this is greater. Go after this. Go after internal adornment. And my observation in our culture. Is for what God calls us to. We all can so easily get sidetracked by what culture says we have to do. Oh, culture says we have to look really beautiful on the outside. I'm going to go after that. And completely forget that what God calls us to is internal adornment. Because it's then that you'll be able to have a gentle and quiet spirit. It's then that your children will rise and call you blessed. It's then that you'll do your husband good. Because it is then that you will follow him and trust him and model to a world what it looks like to trust in God with all your heart, mind, and strength. What a testimony! Because you'll be different from the world. Not just exactly the same as everybody else. Sisters, we need to hear the voice of God on this, don't we? And not just get sucked into culture. So how are you going in pursuing the inner beauty of your heart? Listen, if you are spending more time on your outer beauty than your internal beauty, change that today. Because there is so much at stake. It will radically affect your marriage. It will radically affect your family. It will radically affect your witness. There's no such thing as an immature, thriving wife. 
It takes maturity to follow the Lord. It actually takes what Brendan was talking about in the notices. It takes a lifestyle that is quick to sit at the feet of Jesus because, Lord, I need you. I depend on you. And my family need me to have a gentle and quiet spirit. So, Lord, help me as I sit at your feet to have an unwavering confidence in you today. Ladies, please go after that. That is what God is calling you to. And when you do, there's no doubt that there are distinct opportunities that come to you when you do that, which is my final point just to close. Number three, the opportunities. And Peter mentions two of them here in this text. Two opportunities that come, two fruits, if you will, that come when a wife truly models this and goes after this gentle and quiet spirit that brings about the submission that she's called to towards her husband. The first opportunity comes in verse 1. We read, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And he gives a reason. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. See, it's not clear in this text if this husband here, who is not obeying the word of God, is a believer or a non-believer. It's not clear. Is he somebody that doesn't know Jesus and that's why he's not responding to the word of God? Or is it somebody that does know Jesus but for whatever reason you're having a tough time actually obeying this word? That's not clear. But what is clear is that in God's grace and mercy there is a way that a wife can win her husband without even a word. Now this does not mean that there should never be a word coming out of a wife's mouth. No, it is right for a wife who's married to an unbeliever to keep preaching the gospel to him, to tell him about Jesus. And it is right for a wife that's married to a believer where her husband is living contrary to this word to hold his face up to the mirror, to show him, darling, this is wrong. I think the Bible is calling us to something different. That's right, that is biblical to do. But having done all that, he's not saying, well, just keep going, keep nagging. Nag, 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 nag. No, don't do that. There is a way to win him without using even a word. Well, how? Well, by submitting to him. By modeling in your life what it looks like to have unwavering trust in God. And when you do that, there is a dynamic and powerful force that your submission brings towards a husband. Elizabeth George says it this way. She says, our submission to our husbands whether or not he is a Christian, whether or not he is obeying God, preaches a lovelier and more powerful sermon than our mouths ever could. It's so beautiful. And friends, I've been a pastor now for 23 years of my life. I would have to see, I have seen tens and tens and tens of husbands that have been won by their wives without even a word. But I haven't met one yet that says, you know what? My wife just nagged me and nagged me and nagged me and nagged me, and so I decided I'd do it. Never. In the Proverbs, it even says, it says a lot about a nagging wife. If you want to look it up, just Google nagging wife. In the Proverbs, it says it would be better to, learn, to live on the corner of a roof than have a nagging wife. You know, guys just don't respond very well to this. But what God has done is he said, listen, there's a way you can win him without even a word. They don't respond well to lectures, but they do respond really well to your life. A life that's being lived for Jesus. You'll be amazed how that can soften a man's heart and cause him to question. What an opportunity it is then, isn't it? 
to use this dynamic and powerful force to affect your husband towards the Word of God. And then there's another opportunity, another and profound opportunity, I think, that you all have as wives in the submission to your husband. And we read about it in verse 4. It says, But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, listen, which in God's sight is very precious. Those are not lines we should quickly go over. It is a drop mic moment. Because what we are learning right there is that for all you as wives, you have an opportunity to do something that God himself says, I love that. That is precious to me. Thank you for honoring your husband like that. That is precious in my sight. The one who called you before the foundation of the earth. The one who calls you his treasured possession. The one who called you into a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Looks on at your gentle and quiet spirit that works out in submission to your husband. And he says, I love that. (laughs) Is there any greater opportunity that we have than this? For all of us as his children, that is surely our chief aim. To live in such a way that he says, I love that. And for you as wives, that's the opportunity you have. Every time you offer a willing disposition to honor the leadership of your husband. You know, for some of you here today, this may all be very, very new to you. Once upon a time, that was me. I grew up in a church that was not preaching this stuff. It wasn't preaching other stuff. It just wasn't preaching stuff. I had no clue about this. And when I heard it, I'd already been so sucked in by my culture that this just didn't seem right at all. But actually, when you look again, it is straight from the Word of God. So if you are new to this, I want to encourage you in a couple of books, a couple of recommendations for you. The first book would be Different by Design by Carrie Sandom. If you want to read more, that she is a wonderful author. She's actually a single lady who leads women's ministry in a church in London, UK. Excellent author on this topic. And will really help you understand how does this work. A book called Different by Design. There's also a book called God's Good Design by Claire Smith. Claire is a Sydney sider. We've actually had her husband, Rob, preach here before. Um, she's the one that usually sits on the front row with the Greek text out, and I find it slightly imita- intimidating. Um, but she's a really godly lady and just does an amazing job of helping us see what God's Word says on this issue of design before the Lord. If you don't really like reading, which is, seems to be more and more people these days, I would encourage you to the podcast for such a time as this, a special podcast by Emma Taylor and Janelle Pierce. Are you ladies enjoying that? Yes, well, please dig in more. If you are new to Sovereign Grace, my wife and Janelle Pierce do a wonderful podcast. And one of the things they address is this issue. How are you to own what God has called you to, to your position, to run the race for the glory of God as a woman? For such a time as this, dig it out and spend time in it. But for all of you as wives, I just have two questions that I want to encourage you in as we close by way of application. Two questions that I want to encourage you to ask your husbands. Now, for all those you think I will not be asking, I'm going to give him questions in two weeks' time as well. So maybe beat him to the punch. Two questions that I want to encourage you in that I think will help you 
and I think are profoundly honoring to your husband as he seeks to lead you. The first question is this. If you knew I wouldn't become angry nor upset, it's always helpful to start it that way to whet the appetite of the husband's response. If you knew I wouldn't become angry nor upset, how would you honestly evaluate my disposition to follow and honor your leadership? Create a time, sometime over the next 24 to this week hours. Don't leave it longer than that because life goes on. Take some time this week to ask him that question. Then number two, what's one specific way I can be a better helper to you right now? Ladies, I really want to encourage you to take the time this week to ask your husbands those questions as he seeks to lead you and help you as he is called by God to do as well as a humble leader of your home. Brothers and sisters, it's so easy for the loud noise of this cultural moment to dominate our minds and our thinking. It's so easy in our lives to have the cultural noise on gender, on our marriage and differing roles so loud that we can't hear anything else. But I trust God's voice has pierced through the darkness this morning. I trust his voice has pierced through the chaos and confusion that you only have to turn the news on to see is there. And I want to encourage us, for all of us, may we be radically committed to following this word. Why? Because this is how it will go well for you. This is how you'll bring glory to God. And this is how we will be a witness here in this world. For we're not home yet, my friends. But while we are here, this is how we are to live. So may we do it all for the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, I do thank you for your word into our lives. Lord, our culture, as I said, is so loud on this topic. Lord, if there is a cultural moment battle going on, it is surely on this issue. The evil one is seeking to break down all structures that relate to your word on this issue. So, Lord, would you help us to be vigilant? And would you help us to cling to your word as the lamp unto our feet and a light to our paths? Lord, there's no way we can do this by ourselves. It is not possible. These are not natural inclinations of our heart. But Lord, with you, we can do all things through you who strengthens us. So Lord, even as we come now to close in song, Lord, would we cry aloud of how much we need you, how much we want you. Lord, did you come into our lives afresh and empower us for these roles you've called us to? And would it all be for your glory? In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, as Dave has touched on, the marriage described in that.